Thank you very much. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to worship with you and come across town and make our way past the marathon. All the fools that run long distances early in the morning to end up basically where they started. Um, it's good to have driven past them in a comfortable seat and join you this morning. At the beginning, at the opening of your bulletin, one of the quotes that you have this morning talks about Jesus' protest against suffering, that he doesn't just dislike suffering from a distance, but he protested it with his cross and his resurrection. Uh, This morning, I'm going to preach out of Matthew's Gospel. We've been going through Matthew's Gospel at Hope, and in the rhythm of Jesus' ministry, in the rhythm of discipleship, as he calls people to follow him, there's this back and forth or in and out, gathering and then scattering flow to their life together. Uh, the gospel begins with Jesus being baptized, suffering temptation, and then calling disciples to himself, telling them what life with him will be like, what his redemption looks like, what it means to be broken and in need, and what it looks like to be put back together. And in that way, he gathers disciples for himself in the early portions of the gospel, calls people in to follow him. And then, in the chapters right before this morning's passage, he sends his apostles back out. He makes them missionaries, is what the word really means. He sends disciples who are called to follow out to be scattered and minister in the world around them, in the communities and cities around them, specifically at this point in Matthew's gospel, to the heavily churched and the heavily religious And he sends them out and he does not tell them life will be light and fluffy and nice. Ministry will be easy and comfortable and everyone will smile and shake your hand and pat you on the back. He tells them that they are going to protest suffering by entering into it. By suffering themselves. And that's the same kind of ministry that he had. He protested suffering not just with a picket sign, not just with words against it or strongly worded letters to the editor. He suffered in our place. He subjected himself to suffering and he has sent his apostles, his missionaries out to do the same. And where the gospel picks up in this morning's passage in Matthew 11, Jesus has sent them out. He's instructed them on their suffering and he goes out and continues his preaching He encounters suffering of a different kind. He encounters the suffering of a disciple and a minister from John the Baptist specifically. Suffering not just in prison, but suffering with severe, existential, soul-crushing doubt. John has been called to preach the goodness of Jesus and His kingdom, to call others to turn from the emptiness of their own attempts at redemption of life on their own terms, to call them away from that into the kingdom of Jesus, into his rescue and redemption, and then he's imprisoned, and he starts to question, is Jesus really the Redeemer? If Jesus came to end suffering, if he came to bring a kingdom that makes whole things that are broken, why is there so much brokenness still? This is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's a confusing one to us. It's not one that we expect to find. We find the doubt of the believing side by side with the doubt of those who reject Jesus entirely. And so, whether you are new 
to the church, new to listening to the gospel, whether you are a young worshiper, whether you are old and seasoned and have been around for a very long time, this question stands out from the text to us. And it should resonate with us because this is the question that we feel most deeply, but probably feel like we have to struggle with most quietly. What does Jesus do with our questions and our confusion when He does not make sense to us? Having trusted ourselves to Him, we're asking questions of Him. How do we make sense of our own doubt up against His faithfulness? The good news is Jesus doesn't call us to trust ourselves, but to trust Him. Not to trust ourselves to have all of the answers, but to take our questions honestly to Him. And that's what Matthew holds out to us here in Matthew 11. I'll read the first 19 verses. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, He sent word by His disciples and said to Him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Look, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, as you have gathered us this morning to hear and consider your word, we ask that you would give us ears to hear it that You would give us soft hearts that are honest about the places that we struggle and question the doubts that we have, and that in these things You would meet with us by Your grace, that You would meet with us with more of Your faithfulness, that You would confirm for us the promises that You have made and the hope that we have in You alone. Lord Jesus, this morning as we hear these words, we ask that You give us ears to hear, not just so that we could learn information, not that we could master a text with 
clever interpretations. Instead, would you press these things deep into us? That they would resonate with us and we would feel them deeply. That we would live inside this story. That we would own our own doubts and confusion, not for the sake of celebrating those things or exalting those things, to honestly come to You as people who need healing. To lay those things at Your feet and find You gentle and faithful and better. Lord Jesus, would You do these things for us, we ask. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. With such a heavy text, with such... Uh, urgent questions from one of Jesus' own disciples and ministers in John the Baptist with such stark language from Jesus to the crowds. I'm going to start exactly where you would expect. I'm going to start with Talladega Nights, the legend of Ricky Bobby. Uh, Those of you that have seen the movie surely remember the scene around the dinner table where they pray over the dinner of KFC and Domino's Mountain Dew that is always refreshing. And there is deep truth in the midst of great satire in that scene as they argue back and forth over what Jesus they should pray to. Should we pray to the Christmas Jesus because we like the tender little baby? Should we pray to the grown-up Jesus who has a beard and seems more serious and austere? In a flash of brilliance, one of the characters starts listing off his favorite visions of Jesus, his favorite versions of Jesus. For those of you who haven't seen it, these are the prophets of NASCAR. It has a very redneck vibe to the prayer. And one of them says, I like to picture Jesus with huge angel wings in front of a big angel band, and he's singing lead vocals for Skinner. And later, he comes back around and says, actually, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because like it says, I can be formal, but I'm here to party. And two beautiful things come out in this very sacrilegious scene that probably makes some of you cringe while others of you laugh. We all want a designer Jesus. We want Jesus on our terms. My favorite version of Jesus who saves me the way I want with a redemption and a kingdom and sovereignty that look like I think they should. And actually, even deeper than that, in the tuxedo t-shirt, in the Jesus who is both serious, formal, and here to party, you get this snapshot of verses 16 through 19. That people can't make sense of Jesus or His ministry. They can't make sense of John the Baptist sent ahead of Him. Because on the one hand, John is too formal, too serious, too stern. Naming our sin and telling us to turn from it. And Jesus is here to party too much. His reputation has become the guy who comes and eats and drinks and befriends tax collectors and sinners, all of the wrong people. In the midst of this kind of murmuring, this reputation spreading, people disowning John and disowning Jesus, John is in prison 
And Jesus is still eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners. And John's doubt, the doubt that starts off the passage, the question and the confusion that starts for John and bubbles up in the passage, it doesn't come because there's radio silence. It doesn't come because he's in prison and cut off from the reports of Jesus and his ministry. This is not the kind of doubt that grows in ignorance. This is John's doubt because he's hearing the reports. It's very explicit. Look at verse 2. He's in prison and he hears the deeds of Jesus. Immediately preceding this in the Gospel, Matthew has reported for us that Jesus has been healing the blind, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, preaching good news to the poor, all the things that Jesus says He does. But He's also been eating and drinking and sitting and fellowshipping, finding communion, commonality, and friendship with sinners and tax collectors and scandalous people, people who extort money from you, people who do not look morally as polished as you do. Jesus here, or John rather, hears the deeds of Jesus. He hears this reputation that Jesus can be formal and yet has come and partied with the wrong people. And John, his forerunner, the one who's supposed to go ahead and announce his coming, doubts and struggles and is confused and he questions from prison. He's awaiting execution, and he wants to know, having put all my chips on Jesus, is he going to pay off? Is he going to deliver me? Because I've been proclaiming deliverance. I have been preaching to people, Jesus, that you are the one who was to come. You are the Messiah. You are the Redeemer. You are supposed to save us from all of this. So why is it still here? You are supposed to come and do away with prisons, and I'm sitting in one. You are supposed to come and liberate us from suffering and overcome it, but I am suffering. Was that really you? Are you really the one who's supposed to do these things, or should I look for someone else? We have side by side in the passage are two different kinds of doubt, actually. We have the doubt that comes from John, someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, who trusts Jesus but wrestles against not having everything he's hoped for yet. His hopes are not yet fulfilled. Jesus' ministry is not yet done. His kingdom, just like we prayed earlier in the service, has not come fully. We have that kind of doubt. The doubt of the believing next to the doubt, the persistent disbelief and rejection of those who refuse to believe in Jesus at all. Those who accuse Him and slander Him and mock Him. Who judge Him consistently. John sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus about His ministry to ask whether or not Jesus really is the Redeemer that He's hoped for. Is He really the Redeemer that He has been telling people Jesus is? 
And in his doubt, in his confusion and his questions, John does not lean away from the community of Jesus' disciples. He does not lean away from Jesus and disown Him. Instead, He does the more painful, more terrifying, and more courageous thing. He leans in. He gathers His disciples, the people that have been following John, the people to whom John has been saying, this is the guy, this is redemption, this is hope in the midst of despair. Now when John despairs, he leans into the people that he has told to hope. And he says, I need you to go ask him personally. I need you to go ask him face to face for me. I need to lean into Jesus and have an answer. So they go and they ask, and Jesus actually gives a very gentle answer. He answers them, not just with a cataloging of the things he does, He catalogs the things He does in the language of the Old Testament prophets. He says, I'm fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet promised. I may not look like the Redeemer and the Savior that you expected. I may not heal and meet with and enjoy the people that you expected me to. But I'm fulfilling all of the expectations of the prophets. I am fulfilling all the promises of God It's not that I'm not the right Redeemer. It's that redemption looks different than you expected. He sends them back with a gentle, affirming answer. He sends them back to embrace John on his behalf, so to speak. And he ends with a verse that I love. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I love it. Oddly enough, because I'm often offended by Jesus. I read through the Gospels and I see Jesus say and do things that I wish I could stand up here and apologize for. I come across passages routinely that I am responsible to preach and I can't explain them away. I can't tell you that Jesus looks exactly how I want Him to, and He doesn't do all of the things exactly as you would have Him do them. Jesus does and says awkward things. He presses hard on sin and brokenness. He confronts in ways that feel jagged and abrasive. And Jesus' own disciples throughout the Gospels, in all four Gospels at various times, are very offended by the things He does. They try to pull Him back from the scandalous things that He does. They question Him. Why do you keep doing this? Why do you teach this way? Why would you say that to that poor woman? Why would you meet with those kinds of people? Do you know the reputation you're making for yourself? I love verse 6, not because I am never offended by Jesus. And I don't think that Jesus is calling John to put away his doubts entirely and never speak of them again to answer doubt with dishonesty. When Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, he's saying, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me, who doesn't trip and fall over me, who's not, we might translate it, 
repulsed by me. To be honest about the things that give us trouble, to be honest about the things that raise questions for us is different than the repulsion that he talks about in verses 7 through 15. Jesus answers John with gentleness. He bridges the two conversations with this statement. Blessed is the one who is not repulsed by me, revolted, turned away by who I am, who can handle the things that raise questions, a Savior not on your own terms, and not forsake it altogether. And the crowd that was around him in verses 7 through 15, they were there the whole time. They overheard this. They went away, and Jesus began talking to the crowds. He turns back to the people, and he starts addressing them people who doubt very differently. People who are not just questioning in a momentary offense, but who are scandalized and repulsed. People who have disowned John and his ministry. People who will not have Jesus and his salvation. He turns back to them and he asks, what did you expect? You love the idea that a Savior would come with healing, but you hate absolutely hate the idea that anyone might need to be healed. You hate the idea that any of you are sick, that any of you need medical attention and surgery, radical surgery to change who you are deep down and bring healing and wholeness to the places that you're broken. You love the idea of healing. But you don't want me to meet with people who are broken. You don't want to admit to yourself or to me that you are broken. These are the people who are scandalized and repulsed by Jesus, who will have none of it. Have none of His salvation. Because salvation is great so long as you don't tell me I need saving. And salvation is great if you don't go to the people who know they need saving. If you don't go to people who are beneath us. Not as cool, not as intellectual, not as sophisticated, not as morally pure, not as astute, not as religious. Far be it from you, Jesus, to go to these people and bring the healing that we were so excited about. We just wanted a little nudge, a little help. We wanted a healing Savior as a trophy. We didn't expect you to actually do it. We didn't expect you to meet with these kinds of people in the tangled brokenness of their lives and be compassionate and gentle to offer real healing and salvation. We didn't expect to you to turn back to us in our self-righteousness and call us away from that and tell us that that needs healing too. John was confused by Jesus. He had a season of doubt, and that is not the opposite of faith. His willingness to be honest about it, to lean into his community and lean into Jesus with his questions, that's what real faith does. It's the people around him, the people around Jesus who spread these rumors and name Jesus and label him to keep him at a safe distance. Jesus knows and hangs out with the wrong people. He ministers the wrong kind of salvation. 
He offers hope to the entirely wrong group. And so Jesus says, look, here's the problem. John wanted you to mourn over your brokenness and you refused. You said, we have none. Thank you for stopping by. We will not mourn. And then Jesus came and said, in light of your brokenness and in light of the way I make it whole, let's celebrate the redemption of God. Let's celebrate redemption and healing for those who know their souls are sick. Let's celebrate the healing that God brings to those with fractured relationships, those who have been marginalized, those who have been stripped of everything. Let's celebrate the beauty. Let's dance in the fullness of what God does with the low and the humble. And these people... This generation, as Jesus calls them, look at him and say, that is atrocious. We will not dance. That is not worth celebrating. That's not the salvation I ordered. You are not the kind of Redeemer I want. So they sit stoically when they should dance. And they smile when they should mourn. And they ask Jesus to mourn on their command. When we play the dirge, when we tell you what is wrong with the world, then you mourn. And when we play music for you of celebration, then you celebrate the things that we say celebrate. You dance, Jesus, when we say dance. Thank you very much. We need saving, but we know exactly how we need saving. We know who's broken, and we will direct you to those people so that you can heal when and where it's appropriate. The consistent story of Jesus' ministry, the consistent story of Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus comes as a Savior and a Redeemer, a healer on His own terms, with a kingdom that He builds, with kingship that He exercises And it doesn't fit all of our intuition. It doesn't fit all of our expectations. It doesn't fit the script that I would write for Jesus. So when Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, He says, blessed is the one, happy are the people who see this kind of unexpected, counterintuitive redemption. Blessed are the people who come into this kind of kingdom and are willing to be confused and turned by it towards the things that really deserve mourning and really deserve dancing on my terms. Who learn to grieve and celebrate in the places where I say with sovereign authority, the world is broken and who celebrate and dance and sing and laugh in the places that I say, this is the beauty of redemption. This is the beauty of compassion. As Jesus calls us in to follow Him, as we find ourselves in the same rhythm of being drawn together, called together to be embraced and known and healed by Jesus. 
to be known and loved and embraced by His community of disciples in the church. We're called in together to find those things on Jesus' terms and bring our questions with us. Not label them as unfaith, but not hold on to them persistently. Instead, we bring them and we lay them at His feet expecting He will meet us with this kind of gentleness on His timing, on His terms to answer our lacks of faith with more of His faithfulness. With our imperfection and weakness, with His strength and perfection. We bring these things in and then He sends us back out to mourn where He says to mourn. And to dance and rejoice over the things that He says are praiseworthy and require celebration. In a lot of ways, these things will look the same as those who don't follow Jesus, as the world around us who don't know or who reject Him. But there will be places, very significant places, where those things look entirely different for us. In the wake of the earthquakes in Nepal, which are tragic on their own, as if that wasn't bad enough, there are groups that see these upsetting, disorienting times as very opportune to swoop in and grab people up and traffic them. When people are disoriented and cut off and in need, they can trap and move and pass people off like property. People are gathered and sold into slavery. And I don't need to tell you this morning that they are not sold just for slavery and regular labor. They are sold into slavery for despicable detestable, oppressive, scarring things. I think we would agree with everyone around us, whether they follow Jesus or not, that is detestable. That requires mourning. That should grieve us deeply. But there's an additional mourning if we see that kind of brokenness, that sort of sexual oppression And we mourn the seeds of it that we find in our own hearts. If I see inside myself the same, just a glimpse, just a glimmer of lust, just a measure of some desire to use people, to treat people like they serve my ends, that requires mourning. That's the kind of thing we confess in our confession of sin. And on the back side of it, when people are liberated out of that kind of suffering, when people find redemption and wholeness and are pulled out of trafficking, and their lives are stabilized, we and the world around us, regardless of whether we celebrate Jesus and follow Him, we celebrate that liberation. And we should. The question is, will we celebrate only when the oppressed find salvation? 
Or would we be willing to celebrate salvation that meets the oppressor? What if one of the traffickers, one of the guilty, oppressive, brutal people found salvation in Jesus? That image that turns your stomach? That person that nauseates you right now? You could put them in verse 19 as the tax collector or sinner. The unworthy, the unredeemable, the people beyond salvation, the people that surely Jesus wouldn't save because they don't deserve it like we do. To mourn and to dance as Jesus shows us the things that are detestable and broken by sin celebrate sin undone even in shocking ways that are confusing. To learn to dance and to mourn with Jesus on His terms. To enjoy His kingdom, His kingship, His redemption, His salvation on the terms that He offers and accomplishes it. That is the difficult dance. That is the uncomfortable mourning of discipleship. To follow Him into these things on His terms, and be confronted by Him and know that His thoughts are not mine. His ways are not mine. But in discipleship, in following, we lean in. We are honest about those things. We tell Jesus when we can't make sense of Him. We tell the church around us, the community of other disciples around us, those who follow Him, who also don't have all of the answers, by the way. We lean into our community. You lean into your church family. You lean on the strength of other disciples who are weak themselves, and you say, I can't make sense of this Jesus. I can't make sense of a redemption that would lead me through my difficult marriage, my difficult children, my lack of a job, my own reputation sacrificed because of someone else's incredible selfishness. We lean in. We bring our doubts and our question and we lean on the perfection and the faithfulness of Jesus and we learn by practice. We learn by the training of God as He molds and shapes our hearts after His own. We learn to mourn as He does. Not just the things that He does, but with the depth and for the reasons that He does. And we learn to dance and to celebrate. Not just the things that He dances over and celebrates, but actually to dance with the fervor and the vigor and the joy that He has over that unexpected, counterintuitive beauty of His redemption. This is the goodness of Jesus as He meets with us in our doubts and our questions and our confusion. This is the goodness of Jesus as He calls us into his unexpected counterintuitive redemption to dance and to mourn when and where and how he does. You join me as we pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning.
We thank you for the honesty of your ministry, the honesty of your word. But we are not given stories of people with neat and clean lives. That you don't tell us that the world around us is light and fluffy. That our experience in it is easy. That nothing requires mourning and grief. We also thank you that you do not leave us there in that sober acknowledgement. That we're not left to despair. That in this honesty, as you show us the world through your eyes, you also bring us to rejoice and celebrate as you do. To see beauty in your redemption. That you meet with us in the scandal of our brokenness. That you embrace the scandalous around us. Undo their brokenness by your grace, by your cross and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we hope for more of these things in ourselves, in our friends, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. Would you do these things for us as individuals and families and groups of friends? Would you do this for in town? Would you do this for your church as a whole in Portland? Lord Jesus, would You teach us to bring our questions honestly to You, not as accusations, but as occasions to be met by Your gentleness and Your strength. In the midst of those things, would You train us? Would You train our hearts and shape them by the work of Your Spirit to mourn real brokenness not only defined on your terms, but with the depth of your distaste and your grief over it. Will we learn to hate sin and brokenness the way you do, and yet also hope in and rejoice in, sing and dance and laugh around the beauty of your redemption that is unexpected and enormous, that's scandalously lavish? Would you do these things for us, that we would resemble you more and more? as we follow You farther into the kingdom that is built on Your terms around You as our Savior. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would do these things for our good and the good of those around us, for Your glory, ultimately for the celebration and the banquet that is Your kingdom. We ask that You would do these things and expect that You will continue to do them because You delight to do these things for Your people and for those that You will hunt down by Your grace and draw in to find hope and healing and redemption. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.